What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides, take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is, well, he's the manager of arguably the best cinematic institution in the country, the Astor Theatre. He's also a film programmer, a film critic, on uh, usually on ABC Morning Breakfast. But I prefer his latest title that I caught in a Facebook post of, uh, maybe a week ago now, which uh, someone who was addressing something to him said, the spiritual CEO, the Astor Chapel, the Reverend Zach Hepburn. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Zach Hepburn to One Heat Minute. It's lovely to be here, sir, and you know uh, my constituents and uh, my parish are very happy to have me here as well. So, yeah, bless you all. Oh, bless, bless indeed. Blessings be upon us both. Because uh, look, the Astor is uh, is an institution. Recently, Zach's also said uh, for folks who are listening to this, it is going to drop close to the time that we're recording, a few weeks away. Um, but a, a a retrospective of the films of Paul Thomas Anderson is the latest thing that I've seen him drop out on on there as well. So that sounds like right up my alley, right up my alley, Mr. Zach, right up my alley. So I'm very happy to hear that, sir. He's also one of my all-time favorites. But, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're getting around. We might be able to get a Michael Mann retrospective at some point. I don't, I don't know. That Just might be, keep me posted, feel, my friend. Keep me posted. too big for us. I don't know if I ever made a DCP of Black Hat. I don't. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> this is the thing. There is some cut of Black Hat that only went to HBO now. 
in the States, which is the HBO On Demand streaming service, which was not the theatrical cut, and it doesn't exist on DVD or Blu-ray. It doesn't exist. It is somewhere in the streaming landscape, and it doesn't exist anywhere else. This is the pleasure of being a Michael Mann fan. You hear about cuts of the film that don't exist anywhere except some random streaming service that is not in your country because it's geo-blocked. So fantastic. Uh, Yeah, it's just one of those things. Quite ironic for a film about a hacker, but anyway, that's, uh, what, what do I? What, yeah. <laughs> what it's a we, gift that keeps giving that film, so that's fine. It, it does indeed. Look, yeah. I know a guy with a podcast. If he knows a thing or two about Michael Mann, I will uh, let let him know. Guys, this is um the 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 infamous Kate Manolini's cafe scene between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, um, which they were in the same scene. Ladies and gents, it's not two different people. They're in the same seats. This is what happened. <laughs> actually spans, if you look at the original theatrical cut of the film on Blu-ray, spans from the 89th minute to the 95th minute, really. But today you're listening to episode, oh, I think it's greater than episode 96 because there have been a few bonus episodes in there. But this is the 96th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat. And Dr. Zach Hepburn is joining me for a minute that actually begins. It's the 96th minute. He gets like this sort of the self-satisfied grins that these two titans of new Hollywood cinema, these two method actors of the Brando school get to sort of, you know, they, they, they've just... You know, uh, I, I think George Costanza, Jason Alexander used to do as George Costanza when he nailed the line in Seinfeld... Uh, the the amazing uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus uh, used to say that Jason Alexander would like put his hand out as if he was presenting something, and that that ask him, "What are you doing?" And he goes, "I lay this shit before you," and that is basically the beginning of the minute we get here. Is this phenomenal little knowing glance? It's so close to looking down the lens, like, "Hey, everyone, wasn't that great? Like, didn't we do that in this movie?" But it's just it's just enough. Um, so we just skate on the end of that. And then we get this beautiful revelation scene that happens with Vincent and his crew. So Zach and I are going to watch it. It's a, just a magnificent little coda to the coffeehouse scene, which you've seen, and a lot of great folks have just been talking about it. We see this little coffeehouse coda, and then we get back to the robbery homicide division in LA and check out what the fallout is after that cafe scene. So, ladies and gents, you guys have a listen along. Zach and I are going to watch the scene together now, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. They dumped us. What? They dumped us. What do you mean they dumped us? Chris slipped his tail. He doesn't talk about their scores with Charlene, so there's nothing for me to get from Marciano. I just tried. What about Cerrito? Same. Transponders got put on a bus to San Clemente. They dumped all our surveillance? Yeah. At the same time, 9 p.m. I had coffee with Macaulay Half an hour ago! We were on you. Then Macaulay drives into LAX where surveillance can't fly over because of flight paths. His car's still there. He's gone. Does anybody have any idea? Just missed the swear. <laughs> just right. missed the swear. Just you just the missed the swear. swear. You know, it may be because I'm an Aussie, but like the late show... The, the original sort of uh, uh, working dog late show uh, with Rob Sitch and 
Santa Chilaro and Mick Malloy and Tony Martin, they did this stupid sketch, which has irrevocably changed my brain, um, where they did a, a sketch about Graham Gooch, um, who they, they ask you to guess what Graham Gooch is mouthing his words when he gets taken, Shane Warne takes him for a wicket. And it's something like, um, gosh, gee, I'm annoyed with myself. I think are two of the like multiple choice questions. And I, every time I see someone go, I'm just like, gosh, gee, he's, anno- gee, he's annoyed with himself. Yes, we're just about to get to Mrs. Swear. Um, that's the 96th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. Heat, Zach. What a great, I love. I love the coda at the beginning of this scene. I think it might be one of my favourite couple of seconds of that whole amazing exchange yeah. that rolls into it. I just love it to pieces. I may have missed the Pacino swear, but I got the De Niro scowl. So I'm really, really happy <laughs> yes. about that. Yes. Um, and yeah. Look, I mean, really, that 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 sequence is. Um, I, I don't think there is really anything quite like that sequence that's ever been committed to film. There is just this, you know, palpable sense of energy that no matter what screen you, you see it on, um, that comes through. Uh, so it's, it is just an incredibly impressive scene. And just that, as you said, that, that, that small moment of silence where you just have these two, you know, screen Titans looking at each other, but they are not, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in that scene at that no. point, you know, they are fully the characters. You, you, they, they have vanished behind their characters, and that is just a, a real testament to their ability as performers. So, um, but what I love about the, the, the thing that follows after that is, you know, that the, the extra scene where, uh, you know, Vincent's crew is having a, a bit of a powwow. Is it just everyone looks completely and utterly exhausted in that scene, yes. and it, it's it, they, it's almost that like, they're mimicking. Uh, the, the the big uh, <sighs> moment that the audience has just had. You know, you've got Ted Levine kind of, you know, bent over his chair going, he doesn't even say anything. He's got that classic sort of like office posture going on. Uh, and it's just this, this scene that everyone, it's either because they're, they're so tired uh, because that momentous scene has just occurred or they've just realised that they've got, a, you know, a whole other hour and a bit to go in this film <laughs> as well. So I'm not sure which one it is, but um, I was certainly there with them. I think it's good read. It's a good read, whichever way you go there. I really like that. I just love it. It's like seven seconds. So if we're like, we're doing the math, it's like seven seconds into this minute. And I love that in a way, and because, you know, we've seen... Vincent's crazy one-upsmanship with the helicopter. He gets Neil. He goes and does this unexpected thing in the cafe. He lays all the cards on the table. And Vincent walks out of that scene. What's so tremendous about the whole scene is that Vincent walks out like there's going to be fallout. You feel like the swagger, the real positive swagger that he comes in here. He's casual. He's energized. The positive fallout of this scene is that something's going to happen with Neil and his crew. They're going to make a mistake because I've done something that's drastically unpredictable. And so yes. his whole team are with him. They're like, yep, this is going to shake him up. Like this interaction is going to shake him up. And so when he walks in the room, he's like, okay, cool. I'm good. Like, um, tell me all the good news. And I love here. It's like 12 seconds into the minute. You see Michael T. Williamson's face. He's yeah. scrunched up on the phone like, oh, <laughs> shit. Here he is. Like, I've been on the phone for half an hour, like knowing that Vincent is on his way, just trying to give him something, anything. Yeah. And I love that Wes Studi has just got the balls to go, they dumped us. And they're like, yeah. what? He's like, yeah. hold on, what, what? They dumped us. He's like, and I love the change. I love that. I love Pacino. This is what these two guys do so well. And I imagine 
and I've seen it so great on the ass or writ large on, you know, beautiful old 35 mil prints or 70 mm. mils or whatever. It's just the, the turn of a facial expression from like this deep, you know, confident satisfaction to like, what the fuck are you saying to me? Like it just, yeah. it took, it took the most split second there. Like, I'm just going to like freeze frame it so I can get you in this face. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that face, it's about the 15, between 15 and 16 seconds. It just changes from like, what? Like, what yeah. the hell is going on here? That, that face. What? You, uh, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, the late show. Uh, what about uh, Glengarry Glen Ridge or Glengarry Glen Ross? <laughs> this, is, this is the most uh, sort of Glengarry Glen Ross moment uh, in all of heat, I think, where yes. there's just, you know, these yes. guys in a room, they've got their sleeves up, their ties are uneven, and they just look perpetually pissed off. Oh, and in this yeah. moment, it's like, uh, it, it is literally like, I think the card analogy works so well. It's like going all in. It's like, I've got four of a kind. This person cannot beat me. And then just someone just yeah. puts a royal flush on the table and you're like, yeah. fuck you, yeah. I'm out. Yeah, like, exactly. I'm just like, yeah. there's nothing you can do with this with this moment. I, I think it's so beautiful. Um, and and, I think Pacino's eye acting in it is fantastic. I mean, if anyone ever comes up with a drinking game for Heaton, you know, <laughs> that, 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 there could be subcultures out there that have certainly come up with them. Oh, uh, but you know, there you hasn't have to have... Zach. This is the this is the ninety sixth episode of this show, and yeah. there hasn't been a one eight minute drinking game yet. And I just yeah. love that you're the man that brings it up. You know, this is a guy who's an exhibitor. This is a guy who yeah. has not only watched this film as a film critic or as a fan, yeah. he may have programmed it at times in his life. So yeah. I just love that you're like dialed in, like there needs to be a drinking. Like if you really want to get turn this into the room, we really... Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's all, you know, nowadays cinema exhibition is all about audience participation in a yes. way or, or eventizing sessions. And yes. you know, as, as a holy a cinema text as Heat is, I don't think it's above no. uh, a drinking game or two. No. But, I mean, look, in really, fact, in fact, I would, in fact, I would encourage it. In, I would, uh, the show is endorses a, a drinking game to go with this, look, to go with this movie. You have to have me back at some point, Blake, for the, uh, for the end of it. Oh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll align uh, that sort of methodology we'll just... uh, to the text. <laughs> so, but I mean, really, I think everyone needs to take a shot when uh, Pacino's eyes dart either right or left across the screen. I, mean, I remember when I was growing up, I had an action man action figure where he had this little kind of um, uh, lever at the back of his head where you could flick his eyes uh, either the right or left, uh, you know, if he could hear danger. And I think Pacino is really embodying uh, the, the action man eye acting oh, uh, methodology and, here. And, and look, for folks who are listening to this episode 96, you would have heard the previous episode which is the incredible sight and sound editor at uh, the British Film Institute, Nick James, is the uh, is the uh, uh, guest of One Heat Minute. And what um, what Nick said is that just as a token gesture of his minute, just researching it, he just wrote down, he, he just thought, I'll do the exercise. Sometimes they teach you this as your kid, a screenwriting 101. Like write down every in your favorite movie, take your favorite scene and write down everything that happens. So first you start with the dialogue, then it's the stage direction, then it's the acting direction. Like, what are the actors actually doing in the scene? Are they do they need, you know, are they moving? Are they are they talking to one another? Are they got gestures? And and Nick James is a bit of a sort of, you know, who, who literally wrote the BFI modern classic book on heat. Um, said 
I'll just go through this exercise where I'll just write down every facial expression change that Robert De Niro does. Just for like he didn't he doesn't he doesn't read it all out in the episode. You guys can listen to it if this is if you haven't caught up with it yet, please go back and listen to it and then come back and listen to Zach and I. But he is like I gesture to the right. I, you know, eyes face forward, um, you know, uh, tilt of head, you know, it's like, it is this, the parrying, like, I don't think for all the stuff that happens in really complex scenes with movement, I can't, there is not, no one's ever showed me a scene in any film where two actors are complimenting and reacting to one another just with facial expressions in such a complex way that doesn't feel like a crazy tick performance. It just feels super organic. Like mm. check the door, check him, think about something. So it's like you look up to your right to think about what your response is going to be. You look to him, you look over his shoulder to the exit, you look left to another exit, then you look back at him, then the tilt of the head. And then when he tilts his head, you see Pacino's character tilt his head. It's like, it's just this artful thing, and it's mm. so so crazy to look at. And I, I even after I had that great conversation with Nick, I I went back and I tried to do it, and it's almost impossible. It's like it's like an yeah, impossible yeah. exercise to 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 map that arc. And I wonder if man ever, you know, as the fastidious kind of crazy professional that he is, ever sort of told them the way that he wanted to do it, or if he just marvelled like us, he sat there and just watched these two guys like build this performance gesture by yeah. gesture until he was like, "That's perfect. I'm done." Yeah, I mean, particularly for me with, with with Pacino, I think you know you look at a lot of his roles throughout the course of his career, and I'm you know I'm going back to like even The Godfather yes. uh, here, and he's always got a tremendous presence with his eyes, mm. and I think you know before he became the uh, you know the, the Saturday Night Live punchline of the the hoo has and and the yelling and stuff, he's always had this other sort of intensity, and I always take that back to his eye acting, and that goes to you know Carlito's Way which is another favorite film of mine Great. that he appeared in uh, Dog Day Afternoon oh. Serpico they've all, they've all, Dog Day everyone... Dog Day is yeah. madness he's unraveling yeah. in front of you and yeah. the the his his eye acting in that is like that's where you see how truly unhinged he is cuz the camera it's just he it just seems like his eyes fill up the whole frame Every time he's on screen, it's just, oh, it's wow. It's so great. And I just thought about that. Like you said, with The Godfather too, it's another one across that table, that famous Salozzo scene where he's not saying a word because his, bro- his jaw's broken. He's just listening yeah. and his eyes yeah. are doing all the work in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, um, so maybe that's a whole new uh, method that uh, Pacino uh, in his legacy can leave behind for performers, the, the, the Pacino eye acting. Yes, class, yes. Uh, but um, look, it, it really, uh, particularly rewatching uh, the film uh, in the lead up to this, particularly this scene, uh, really struck me because I mean, I you know, I, I remember seeing this film uh, actually upon its original theatrical release uh, in 1995. Yeah, uh, late 95, I, early 96 in Oz, I think something like that. Yeah, yeah so I I think I I used to sneak out of high school and go <laughs> to. Um, uh, you know, I can, I can, I'm exonerated now. I'm a reverend. I can say whatever I want about this. It's all, you know, it's, it's all official it's business. Double, it's double uh, jeopardy. It's, they can't they, get you. They can't. never, they would never take me alive. It's fine. Um, so I, yeah, I used to sneak out of school and go uh, into uh, the Melbourne CBD. And you know, back then, um, you know, in the mid 1990s, there was actually you know CBD cinemas uh, which yeah. would you, you know play films that you could go to that weren't in large shopping malls that were like street fronted CBD cinemas uh, and I saw this at the um, the village uh, Burke Street cinema uh, the village four as it was called village and four. Um, 
it was the only THX certified cinema in Melbourne at the time. So I, I went to a daytime session of Heat. I think it was like two thirty in the afternoon, and it was like packed. And you know, I, this is this is not giving away any trade secrets nowadays. You cannot find a daytime session of a first release film packed in the middle of the day. I, I don't care what film it is. You no. no Star Wars, no first run, anything is going to be able to get that many people in during the day. And these were like, like massive cinemas as well too. There was like, you know, like three, 400 seat cinemas and the place was just electric. Uh, so I really so remember good. that. So good. It was just, just an experience to be able to go in there. You know, you, there, was, there was, you know, a, a ticket seller, you go, you said you know, ticket for heat, you go upstairs and it was like, I remember it was like, this is a three hour film in the middle of the day with like, you know, two, 300 people seeing it. Um, but seeing, seeing it, on the big screen, uh, you know, was, was such a different experience. And it, it was something that I think when the film came out subsequently on, on home entertainment, I actually didn't go and get a copy of it. Yes. It was something that I really wanted to sort of contain as a cinematic experience. That's a really interesting point. That's a great point. That's a great point for like, there is certain films where you go, if you'd ever seen it on the big screen, maybe for the first time, you're like, why would I ruin that? That was, that was pure cinema. Yeah, because it's. I mean, this is even when it when it came out. It was a very very early days of of DVD when it when it hit uh, the uh, the home end stands as well. Yes. Uh, and I think I could I could be wrong, but I think it was one of those very very early DVDs that you had to flip in the middle of it, which they used to refer to as a flipper. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't get all the information. I didn't get the I didn't get the first flipper disc of this one. Yeah. I was around yeah. for flipper disc, but I didn't get the first flipper. That I got the first. It was like the next gen where they got we got super excited. Folks who were listening who were just like, "What are these guys talking about?" Um, yeah. there when they made the full proper Warner Brothers, del- uh, you know, sort of deluxe edition that had special features and things like that. Um, that was from memory that had like a. a, a- mildly reflective slip case yes. over it uh yes. yeah I, I remember getting that as well too it was very that was very exciting yes. uh but uh look i i remember seeing it and then i i thought you know i don't want to take it home on video because it was when you could still kind of render it on, on video fairly because it would have just been probably more than likely a pan and scan version and it yes. was it was really only till recently where the 4k uh reissue came out and and we played it at at the Asta that i saw the film again uh, in its entirety and um, it's incredible how much it holds up. It's, it, it is, you know, and I, I had kind of just forgotten and this obviously sounds silly to say, cause we're, we're, we're talking about this film minute by minute, but just, <laughs> just how involved each movement is like that. The, there is so much going on in this film that it, it's almost, you know, uh, suffocating in a way. <laughs> yes. It's, it's yeah. what I've found is a couple of folk, have asked me usually when we're preparing for an episode it'll just be in the pre pre ramble that's not recorded and and you guys who are listening now won't get it but some people have gone have you had a boring minute and i go no (laughs) not one like everything is loaded you know everything is loaded you know it uh, and uh Famously, my, I guess the my most famous example, or sort of the the signature example, I say, is the um, really great Melbourne-based uh, film critic Stephen Russell came and did the, the show. He did the fiftieth episode, the fiftieth minute, and he said to me, "Blake, this minute is there's nothing going on. Because <laughs> there's nothing going on, Blake. There's, there's a guy driving through a drive-in, and I go, just 
I go, that's cool. I just laughed and said, that's cool. Like, legit, let's just let's just see what happens. And Stephen is a fan, as I know that you are, of Twin Peaks: The Return. So he'd been oh. binging on Lynch, watching The Return, and then he came back to the minute closer to the time that we were going to record the episode. And then all he could see was this sort of post-apocalyptic, you know, cinema is dead landscape where the scene was being set. And he was just like, it just blew his mind. He was like, oh my God, this is like this Lynchian post-apocalyptic space. And this is man occupying it and then getting guys to shoot people in it. And so we had this amazing conversation. And I honestly, I'm just flabbergasted with every single scene like that. And I think some of the, even this dialogue scene, um, that goes past, it could be such a, and in fact, it's probably the the formerly the least creative, or the you know the least creative scene, or the least interesting scene in the entire films. But the the there's such a dynamism in the performances and the detail of each of the performance that you can kind of they get elevated to along those other scenes. But like sometimes it's like someone driving out of an underpass that looks like a cathedral. You know, and and they're yeah. like a little portable confessional driving out of it. You're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, yeah, I couldn't so, believe that this could exist in this movie, but it's there. It's all there. It's on screen. It's crazy. Even the, even the camera work in this sequence that we've just viewed. I mean, it, you know, you're essentially looking at four guys in a room talking, but the way it just sort of plays with this sort of ballet. Uh, of of their their standing and it just sort of like weaves around them uh, is just it's just really impressive and it all goes down to that scope cinematography I mean th- th- that that yeah. two three five to one frame you know the fact that man can make an office look dynamic in a uh, you know a scope frame is really just all about his 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 visual iconography I think uh, and the way he can position characters and you lose that when you lose that scope frame yeah. um, and, and if this um, I remember when you see old VHS tapes uh, back in the day where they were just starting to bring out uh, widescreen versions of films on cassette, uh, you know, after after the, the, the pan and scan era. And they would show you a, a you know, sort of, uh, I'd say, a side-to-side comparison of, um, of certain films. And if there was ever a film to be able to show that to people, it would be this film. Because, look, I mean, you, you look at that kind of shot that's just going on um, in, in the background there, Blake, as you just uh, screened yeah. it, and it's literally just this, this three – a character would have to be cut off. In that in that oh, sequence, if he was going to pan and scan it, you just nailed. I think exactly why there was the crazy fan theory that mm. Pacino and De Niro were never in the same scene. Because in the <laughs> yep. pan and scan version, you wouldn't see that it's his head. Like you yep. wouldn't see that it's even there. You'd just go, "Oh, I didn't even know that." And what's even more frustrating from a home viewing perspective, I know this is a bit random, but it's it's sort of tangentially it's right, is because you know Christopher Nolan's such a man fanboy. Um, yeah. I, I flicked on the opening scene of The Dark Knight Rises. I was like, I haven't watched The Dark Knight Rises, which arguably, you know, is maybe my favorite of those three films. And we can sure. that's a, that starts a whole other conversation. So I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I was watching it and famously shot that opening sort of six, seven minute sequence of shot in IMAX, which just usually fills your complete TV screen. And then it transforms mm. to your sort of normal, I think, two, 235 to 135 mm. mil look for the rest of the film. Um, Netflix have like pan and scanned it so it's all the same. It's all the same. And I, I turned it on and I was watching it and I was like, this is the wrong aspect ratio. Like I, I, I don't care as a as a nerd that the aspect ratio changes with the film stock in on the Blu-ray, but I'm like, mm. this is wrong. 
Like it's, it's yeah. wrong. And I had to turn it off. I had to go down, you know, I had to go down to my garage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a smaller house these days. I had to go down to the garage to the, 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 a few storage containers of Blu-rays and I'm like digging out the Dark Knight ones because they weren't urgently the provided. Yeah, had to go to the archive. I had to go to the reference archive. I'm like, no, this is wrong. Can't bring it back upstairs. Play it on the Blu-ray player. I'm ah, like, oh, yeah, there, there it is. That's, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see this rubbish like, you know, 16 by 9 standardization of cinema. I'm like, no, this is not right. Give me my And it's Blu-rays. really funny. Certain films, you can just, you know something is wrong with them when, yes. you, when you say it that way. And if you, you know, even if you're in a theater and it's, uh, you know, sadly being projected incorrectly with the wrong lens on the projector or the masking has it open correctly, you know, <laughs> some films, you know, you, that you, you, you instinctively don't understand, you don't realize it and just kind of plays out in front of you. But when you see a film like this and then, you know, obviously uh, the, the Nolan verse as well, um, you've just got this instinctual knowledge that something is not correctly because it doesn't feel natural yep. at all. And I think they just, they have the ability to capture their vision so naturalistically on screen that um, you, you just know instinctively that there's something wrong. I, I would love to see on the Astra, and I don't know, you could absolutely tell me, I'm sure you know, the 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 searches, John Ford's The Searches, was in yeah. stereoscope, which is a yeah. weird aspect ratio. I don't know if you know what the dimensions are off the top of your head, but it's a weird aspect ratio. And mm. it's so amazing is because some of those... Um, sort of what you'd probably call like mid-focus, cluttered conversation scenes that unfold in the house. Everyone is mm. so crisply in focus that yeah. things can be happening in the fore and background and the mid-ground of the frame all at the same time and they capture your interest all yeah. at the same time. And that's another one, that's another movie that I like, if 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 you ever saw a pan and scan, it's it's not... You have you would have no idea what you're watching. It's not the same yeah, movie. It's... it's not the same movie. It's just it's not the same movie as when you've got the sprawling frame to sort of, you know, you're you're the person who's panning the frame to find the things that are really you know grab, grabbing your interest in any given moment. And you certainly wouldn't see the uh, you know um, the slightly agitated Pacino neck vein, which we <laughs> yes. get in this scene as well. It's yes. this little. I mean, that's a. I think that's a whole. If we're talking about Pacino's eyes, that's one thing. But we could also go through and systematically work out the the, the neck vein acting, which is going on in this film. He just it just got this little kind of like as soon as the the yells about to come, there's this little kind of tickle in his neck vein that I think is quite telling as well. I just love Wes Studi. We're playing it silently as we're chatting. I love that Wes Studi's Casals is the guy who actually has the balls to say, because yeah, yeah. you see Michael D. Williamson who towers over him is like, I don't want to fucking yeah. tell him. And you see Ted Levine exactly as you said, hunched over. He barely, like yeah. for literally most of this entire scene, he has not said a word. He's just no. like, oh, I'm not even bothering. This is not <laughs> this is not a productive moment for me to tell him. And it's like, who... I, I, I just often wonder the split second before you come into the scene, who drew the short straw? Was it because yeah. I was just like, you got to tell yeah. him. You get fucking yeah. someone's got to tell him. I don't want. I don't. I don't want any part of telling him. It's not going to happen. It's totally not going to happen. But I, well, yeah, so good here. That's an interesting kind of idea too. Like, because I'm, I'm, I'm probably in your research, you'd have much more of knowledge uh, of it than I would. But do we know how many takes man usually does? Is he a Kubrickian? sort of mad taker where he'll do like, you know, 50 to 60 takes of one thing, or is he much more of a sort of organic director in terms of, well, you know, we got that, we're going to move on. Cause this to me feels like something that would have been a lot of takes this scene. He's, 
It's weird, Zach, because the the famous coffee shop scene, he said is take 11. Yeah. And so I would assume they probably did about 15 to 20 takes of that scene. Um, and what's funny is if you have a look at the trailers on even the, the really beautiful new 4K Blu-ray that they brought out, one of the trailers has a line reading from the conversation scene, like if they show you the original theatrical trailers, that's not this cut. It's an yeah. earlier cut. Someone's just cut it together from one of the one of the prospective takes, I think. Um, so, yeah, take 11 is what he said. But there's this weird other thing that man often says, and I'll, I'll just sort of paraphrase. It's something to the effect of they only get it right once. He doesn't like over-rehearsing the scene. Mm. And he, they only ever get it right once. And I think I've got a feeling that he's sort of a that's his wheelhouse, probably between 10 and 20 takes. He's not quite Kubrickian yeah. to the, or like Fincher, like 70, yeah. 50. Yeah. Yeah. It's not ridiculous because I think that man, man's the kind of guy where after all the preparation and after all the craziness, if he gets the take, I think he knows he's got it. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's a yeah. weird thing to say, but it's like in every bit of research that I've done, he seems like the guy that he's like, we get it right once. He goes, I th- yeah. he, he said this line many times in many interviews. The perfect take comes once and there's one that's close to perfect. And if you do it too many times, you just lose it. Yeah, well, that's why I think that for me, that this conversation that they're having, uh, whilst you know there's certainly a power play dynamic going on, it does feel incredibly organic. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's where that obviously comes into play because it, it does feel like this is just a conversation is just happening. Yes. You know, I, I, that, that really comes off the screen to me. They're, especially because they ad-libbed the whole dream sequence that, that the yeah. dreams, the, the dream conversations are for folks, you know, I'm not, not sure if you're listening back to back of the conversation minutes, you probably heard this before, but just to say, just to sort of um, catch you up if you, if you haven't quite listened to them yet is, you know, the dream sequence is the big ad-lib. That's the one that they just, it was not on the page. It wasn't anything. And it was something that Pacino felt like he wanted to go down that path. And they just, they, they worked it together. They'd only ever done a screen, uh, sorry, they'd only ever done a table read of this, the whole film with the cast once they were completely cast. They never rehearsed this scene. And one thing, this is a really interesting one. Like for, you know, we've talked a lot about Pacino, but for De Niro, who is such an icon um, himself, I, I heard a great interview where he said, I, did, I told Al and I we shouldn't rehearse for this scene. We should just do it. And for mm. him, the reason he said that was, he goes, we haven't got any complex blocking or we're not moving. So let's just do it. It's just you and me. And so yeah. to have the sheer confidence of like his craft from a, from his face, you know, knowing that his whole face is basically going to fill the screen, you know, for him, rehearsing is about movement. It's about what else the character's doing in the movement. He's like... I don't have to rehearse if I'm just sitting across the table with someone and the camera's in my face. Like, I know the character inside and out. Mm. I'm just going to be able to portray him. So that was one of my little tidbits there of these two guys, like, generating this. And I, th- I think these guys all in this sequence here, I don't know how many times they would want to do it. Like, this, this, great, this great sequence here. I, I think mm. Pacino's got to do a lot of the heavy lifting here. He's got to do that yeah. great arc. These guys yeah. have got to just go, they, they dumped us. Yeah, you know, and 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 they they've all got to kind of be frustrated and watch him go from complete confidence and swagger to yeah. now completely pissed off, and now what the hell do we do and next? They're gone. That 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 exhaustion kicks in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, the other, the other thing that I'm constantly thinking of when I when I look at these these films as well too is like man's career has now become, or you know, really 
linked to digital technology, and I, I don't think Heat would be the same if it was filmed digitally. No, I, I don't think if you, if if you were looking at it, and it, it seems funny to say because it is such a gritty film and it's such a uh, uh, you know a dark film in, in in so many ways, but that's where I think the the depth and and the beauty of of, of thirty five millimeter really comes into play, even when you're in this sort of urban. Uh, menagerie that we we find ourselves in throughout this film and you know urban I, menagerie I just, it, urban menagerie it's it's his last classic you know really classically shot film you know yeah. even the insider which is again beautifully shot in 35 mil it starts I, I think i think of the moment there's an amazing moment in the insider for folks who you know don't have a strong recollection or if you've never seen it there's sort of this centerpiece moment of the film where uh um Wygant, Jeffrey Wygant, played by Russell Crowe, which is, I think, one of his most criminally underrated performances of his entire career. Like, probably yeah, the, the, the film that deserved the Oscar way more than Gladiator ever did. Um, this incredible performance that he does. Um, Pacino comes back to back with Man in this one as Lowell Bergman. And it's a scene where he's at a driving range. And it's this, you know, this beautiful little scene is like a microcosm of those sort of paranoia thrillers from 70s New Hollywood where you feel like everything is, everything's all hunky-dory and everything's all right, but the whole world is going against you. And it's in that scene that man starts using those really, uh, those up close, like little video experimentation cameras that like get really claustrophobic in your face. And, and he, he does it a lot more for the movement in Ali. Like there's some great fight scenes where, you know, man's literally standing behind Will Smith as he's jabbing and you get this really great POV shots over the shoulder, you know, his characteristic POV shots, but they're like, you're in the ring. And I think that that's kind of the moment that he sort of really drastically goes, I need to explore other technological options. It's like not classic anymore, but you know, Dante Spinotti famously, he says Zach in the, the helicopters, you know, they're, they're overexposing the film. He's like hanging out of a helicopter with a torch, like trying to light another helicopter while it's flying through the middle of LA and those sprawling LA nights in, in, and those sprawling Miami nights that we see um, later on are all just, you know, beautifully crisp in digital film. But I think it's like, you know, this is the last classic, that classic, version of that before it goes through it's a beautiful sort of full stop of like this is me making a classical film film yeah because i I certainly see it as a a sort of a a weird you know unofficial trilogy within within man's sort of career you've got thief you've got heat and you've also got collateral yes um but i just uh you know as soon as we i think it all works uh, the, the the different formats and different styles it feels very natural the way that sort of progresses yes but when you get to something like public enemies i remember seeing public enemies and i was just like what in the hell am i watching <laughs> and i had this weird kind of uh, moment of complete sort of you know cinema schizophrenia where i was being projectionist at the time and i was i was showing public enemies on 35 millimeter film but it was giving off that digital image yes yes and that yeah it was right in that 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 changeover period and it's just it's never really left me of just of just how bad public enemies looks and i've never i i remember i wanted to like that film so badly and and i'm not a i'm not a formatist you know i'm 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 very open to uh to to different screen formats but that for me was just the, the 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 complete failure of uh, of digital cinema at that time uh, it's certainly moved on you know you know fantastically since then 
but um, there it was just an absolute letdown for me, and I just I could never get past. And I've never seen Public Enemies again, nor nor probably will I. It, I've seen it many times, Public Enemies, but I, I agree yeah. with you because I have this weird. I mean, a weird two minds about the digital in Public Enemies. One is, you know, it, it is kind of grating. You know, there are some spectacular mm. shots in it, um, but it is kind of grating the digital. And the very organic sort of nine, you know, early nineteen hundreds, you know, setting. I think the production design just craves celluloid. Yeah, the the format like is grating against the the production design, and and especially because two years after Heat, Dante Spinotti lensed what I think is the other most beautiful, except for maybe Chinatown, is the other most beautiful LA crime film ever made, which is Curtis Hanson's LA Confidential. And to think of the Dante Spinotti who shot that, being able to shoot public enemies with that beautiful old celluloid, it would have just, I think, could have elevated it in such an unbelievable way, especially, you know, the jailbreak scenes and, you know, those those things, the bank, you know, the opening bank heist, mm. so much of it, it's just like, oh, I wish this had a little bit more texture. It's so tough and rough. But it's, you know, it's that, it's it's man, you know, constantly pushing pushing the limits, so to speak. Mm. Not all of it works. I don't think all of it works in the no, experimental I mean, I, phase. I, but, I, but I, 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 you know, I think, I think that's... Uh, it's just sort of one of those things, and I'll, I'll certainly give it. You know, I'll certainly give it to him that I think it's it's great that he was pushing the envelope. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it was just for for me. I think you know that that would have been a great almost coda in a way to that unofficial sub trilogy that he had going on uh, in his work to be able to go back and regress to uh, you know the early nineteen hundreds of 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 the heist movie or, yes. or, or the crime film. It, but it just felt like it was a bit of, it, it ended on a bit of a dead note for me. So, yeah. um, but look, we, we always have, um, you know, uh, thief, uh, which is all one of my all time favorite films as well. I absolutely adore thief. Uh, but, um, thief, thief, thief is, thief is right. You know, thief is right there. It's, uh, it's, uh, he's, um, you know, the other one, the other one that I think that totally just laps up the digital is Miami Vice. Mm. Totally. My, no, my, I, I, Miami, yeah. Miami Vice is that other one where it's like the modernity, and the and especially because it's like by os, pure osmosis, um, Miami had the worst hurricane season ever yes. when he shot the film, and so instead of these, you know, the glorious, um, uh, you know, uh, pas, pastels of the series, like being able to sort of evoke that, like it's all hurricanes, it's all you know, just ghastly weather. So it's like, oh, a lot of stuff changed tonight. A lot of scenes changed tonight. A lot of locations changed. It's like, so, so then, then the night lights and all that sort of weird, um, uh, that sort of weird yellowy golden light of, uh, that was sort of that, um, ambience that's coming off the city. Just like it, 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 it's almost like a, it's like candlelight almost. It's beautiful in that digital photography. It's really ethereal and cool and, uh, and mystical in some senses as well as being like really crisp and harsh and gr- you know, gritty, uh, for all the other crime stuff. So yeah, no, it, it, I think it's, yeah, you watch those two together and one of them fits like a glove and the other one, you're like, ugh. Look, Give me some cellular. Give me the some other thing that really, really gets me about Miami Vice. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Miami Vice, but it's got the strangest closing shot 
of any Michael Mann film <laughs> yeah. I think I've seen. It's just, you know, he's just walking into an ER room. That's um, just, uh, you know, no spoilers, but uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I would I would love to see, you know, like um, a, a super cut of all the last shots of a Michael Mann film. And I reckon out of all of them, the Miami Vice one would be the strangest yeah, one that would ever be committed to screen. It is pretty strange. It is pretty strange. It's It, um, it, it doesn't have... You know, you think of the crescendos that some of his final shots, you know, like the like Last of the Mohicans, yeah. you know, uh, on a clifftop, that swelling Oscar-winning score, hate, uh, you know, not to mention it too much, God moving over the face yeah. of waters, one of the most unbelievable scenes ever, still floors me every time I've seen it, and I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Um, I'm just trying to think of the ins- – uh, what's the insider? Oh, the insider with uh, Lowell Bergman, Al Pacino. He's like in the vortex. He like pushes yeah. through the door and the score swells. Yeah, it's amazing. And, that one is just like, man, Manhunter. Manhunter is this very picturesque beak shot, and then yes. that, you know, the, the, the 80s uh, hair metal kicks in. <laughs> um, but I um, – you know, I just – yeah, Miami Vice, every time I go back to it, I have seen Miami Vice quite a few times and I, I really dig it but every time I'm like wow that's a that's that's a weird ending okay yeah yeah so wow that's uh, uh that's that's what that is uh but luckily luckily he's uh you know he's got a lot of others uh in the engine so uh but look I look I every time I, I view this film it's it's been doing this podcast has been a great excuse for me to go back uh into the the, the man verse because I've I've really been out of it for a while I've, I've not gone back to a michael mann film uh since playing heat at, at the at the cinema and you know just to talk about the power of heat like we we uh through various different uh schedulings uh ended up playing the film uh, at like 11 o'clock on a saturday morning for one session because we had extra room to go well we'll throw an extra session of heating because we were playing it as part of a, a film festival run and I thought, well, look, you know, we'll just play it and, and, and we'll get what we get. We had like almost 100 people at 11 a.m. <laughs> on a Saturday morning. Yes. To see heat in, My to people. See heat in 4K. So, like, and, and that was only, you know, um, uh, last year. So, that, that to me showcased that Great. there was still a huge uh, level of interest in this film that I, I don't think will, will ever go away. I think it's, it's always going to be one of those films that is part of the canon. Yeah, I think it's a huge. I think it's, I think it's his. Uh, I just recently spoke to the the most recent episode that as we're talking that aired is uh, an episode with Sean Burns, and he just he he talked about um, he talked about heat in in really great terms as like man's like the perfect. Um, it's like the perfect synthesis of his whole pet. Oh, sorry. He, sorry. I get the exact quote is the purest expression of the filmmakers pet themes. And, and so, and, and I, and I think that I think some, some films are just like they hit a filmmaker and they're so perfectly attuned to their sensibility and, and their craft at that moment, or they've been stewing on a theme. And especially because he got to do this as like a do over from the LA takedown it's script. The LA takedown film. Yeah. Yeah. So when he gets to sort of roll into heat, it's just something wholly different. Again, it's something, it's something else. And yeah, I, I think that what is funny though, Zach, and you're an exhibitor now, of course. So there are some straight, like, uh, these are my man people, but I, I love you guys. If you're listening, but there are some weirdos who are like the latest man film is the one that they think has both been most criminally underrated and they're like, it's amazing. So like people will be like black hat, it's the best Michael Mann film. And I just go, my, my first thing to say to those people is 
just stop, okay? Just stop. Yeah. You yeah. guys just Look, need to stop and, and just pause for a second. Oh, it's the greatest. It's one of the, you know, it's criminally underrated. Is it? it is it? Like, Luke, if it can even breathe in the same conversation as Thief and Heat and The Insider, yeah. and, and Collateral for that matter, and Miami Vice for that matter, like, if it, if it even gets into that conversation, that top five, go go ahead but it's still got to knock out jericho mile and manhunter yeah, that's it. yep. it's it's like there are so many other great ones i'm like ugh, there are some weirdos out there that are still trying to tell me black hat's good and i just won't buy it i can't I well can't look and you know cards on the table i'm the biggest <laughs> david lynch apologist probably out there and i will have a lot of people also say to me you know inland empire oh that's that's an underrated that's an underrated <laughs> film like look it's, it might be an underrated uh, gallery installation but uh, i don't i don't know if it's an underrated film yes. uh, you know m- much love to david but uh and, and, you know, that's a really interesting, interesting point about that 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 perfect sort of encapsulation of of a filmmaker's yeah. uh, core themes because you know for me that 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 is without a doubt a razor head with david lynch it's without a doubt it's dead ringers with david cronenberg yes uh you know it's just a, that, that it's amazing that when filmmakers latch on to something they can imbue it with this sense of passion and just overall control that audiences still are constantly receptive to, even when they've made, you know, dozens of films. Yes. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we see that with Scorsese as well. Uh, you know, for, for me, that, that, that encapsulation is, is, uh, is taxi driver. Yeah. And every, every time you play taxi driver, you just get, so many people coming out to it. Whereas, you know, we, we played, uh, you know, New York, New York recently, which is a film I adore and, you know, no, no one turned up. Yes. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's funny how, when, when you do these sort of, you know, uh, career spanning filmography, retrospective seasons, what audiences are still attaching themselves to. And, and, and I would um, imagine with Scorsese, it's all the, you know, all the usual suspects, so to speak. It's, you know, it's mean when you throw on main streets and taxi driver and good fellas, you're yeah. going to get those, th- those three, out of his entire over casino um those three out of, or four out of there are, are always going to have a stack of people trying to get and clawing themselves to get to it every time you try and give them the flip side of after hours or bringing out the yeah. dead people like, i don't i don't want that nah, thank you take, no that, take that away from me look so, thank but, you very and, thank you very much zach but no we'll, we'll no, come, please we'll watch another please. session then, of goodfellas exactly and look that that would be an interesting call with if if uh, a man filmography season was to to eventuate because I would be very interested to see if uh, Manhunter is a film I've wanted to play at the cinema Love since Manhunter. I started in in the realm of cinema programming and uh, regrettably uh, there's no real strong uh, film elements for it in this country uh, so it's something that's been absent from screens for many years but I, I feel that uh, you know that film uh, may struggle to get people nowadays regrettably so uh, I think but you know if you if it's you were put on you were put on heat you would have you know, people lining up around the block, but rightly so. But, but yeah, it's weird, right? But I, I think man, I think Manhunter, you can persevere if you get it. You should go with it and just talk about it being a Hannibal Lecter movie because there was the mm. Hannibal series. People love it, you know. Mm. So you know, I'm I'm a fanable. Um, I'm right there, and I think there's there's a lot of folk out there that want to see. You know, it's it's so funny the um, you know, people going back and revisiting a performance. There's not really too many more than like Brian Cox's. Uh, you know, incredible Hannibal Lecter um, mm. is is always talked about. Is always talked about as someone like the more the more people saw Anthony Hopkins in the role of Hannibal Lecter, they're like, 
you know, I really like to see Brian Cox. I really yeah. would have liked to see what Brian Cox did with it. And it's so, you know, maybe not for the, maybe not, I think, you know, there's there's perfect filmmakers that come along, um, you know, and I think Silence of the Lambs is, is that, is, is that, is, is that perfect thing that you didn't want Michael Mann to have to do, but, you know, maybe for Hannibal would have been nice for him to come back with Brian Cox and see how that played out. Well, man's again. I think it goes back to his the way he frames things and his his pacing, his editing as well. Because you know the, the sequence in in, in Manhunter where um, uh, Hannibal's in the cell and he's like uh, dialing out to be able to get Will Graham's contact details outside of the prison. I mean, man and Cox in that sequence managed to make a stick of gum and a telephone scary. Oh yes, and I think that's that's a really. Uh, strong testament to to man's ability to be able to create tension to his rhythmic editing and his his framing uh because the performer himself in the in the scene is actually doing very little to be scary but it's just the way that it flows is very absent the absence of music i think is, is really important in that scene uh but yeah manhunter is a film i really hope that uh, when people do look at man's career they they do reevaluate um and uh, the keep being one as well but that's um you know that's got its own whole that's a, whole that's a whole other conversation. So, yeah. that, that, so, look, as we sit as we sit here at the end of the 96th minute and we watch Al Pacino on the precipice of a swear, I want to thank Dr. Zach Hepburn for coming along um, to be a part of the show. Zach, thank you so much for being a part of the show. If there is a man retrospective, I want a text message with a with a now as a dad of two. Give me some time in advance to well, lay I mean, the groundwork to lay the groundwork <laughs> to to travel to Melbourne to be at the Astor to see some of his glorious films in that in that in your chapel, Reverend, in I mean, your chapel. Blake, well, I think what we need to do is a manathon and have oh. you podcast live podcast the full twenty four hours of, of of the manathon. Ladies, so, you're here to, you heard it here first. Yeah. I'm, I'm it's an exclusive. <laughs> it's an exclusive. I will be there. I will be there to do that. Uh if that if that event happens, I'm on hand. You guys heard it here. Um, I'm on the hook. So thank you so much for doing this. I really, really, really appreciate it. Guys, you can catch Zach. Of course, um you can visit his sermons at the Astor Theatre in Melbourne. Um, one of the most glorious um, old cinema houses and internationally renowned cinema house. One of the most enviable programs, someone who is based in Sydney. Um, I still subscribe to all the ASA stuff and I get all the emails and I still go and check out what the program is and I just gasp at uh, how amazing it is. Most recently, the Nick Cage-a-thon with the Melbourne International Film Festival um, was was just um, sublime. So well done, Zach, um, on that again. Um, if you want to follow Zach... Um, he's on the Twitter at Dr. Zach Hepburn, Dr. Z-A-K Hepburn, H-E-P-B-U-R-N, um, ABC uh, News 24, or sorry, not 24 anymore, ABC News, you can catch him at breakfast doing movie reviews every week, um, you can catch him there, um, or if you want, just go to the Astor, best cinema in Melbourne. Is there anything else, anywhere else they need to find you, Zach? No, uh, look like I am uh, always just around trying to get uh, Al Pacino to say the swear word that I'm going to go and hear him say in a minute closure on that anecdote. Uh, but no, look, I'm a man about town. You, you'll find me where any movies are playing usually. But uh, it's been a real joy uh, discussing this film with you two and uh, rekindling my love for, for Michael Mann. Oh, so thank you very much, sir. You are more than welcome. Guys, um, thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And... Um, uh, look, Zach, thank you for being a part of what is, I think, 
you've, you've you just touched on the coda of seven of the greatest minutes of motion picture acting um, that has ever been committed to celluloid. You have just kissed the end of it, and we have said farewell to the the cafe scene in Heat. Um, it has been a huge one, and I know lots of people have been looking forward to it. So just a little special thank you so much for sticking around, and uh, and I hope you really enjoyed the murderer's row of guests that we had for these uh, these minutes, So and Zach being one of them. So thank you so much. Guys, we will catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.